pray together. Heavenly Father, in Christ alone can we come to you. We have no access in and of ourselves. Our sin has separated us from you. But because of your substitute, because of your Son, the Son that you have sent for us, you have bridged the gap, you have filled the gap for our sake, for your glory. And now we come to you as your children. The wrath has been satisfied on our behalf. Lord, let everything that we do today be worshipped. Every word preached be worshipped. Every preached word received as worship. Let us apply these words to our lives. Let our families look different. Let us look different. Let us be new, God. Wake us up. Wake us up from our apathy. Wake us up so that we might actually apply your word and be transformed into someone new. God, we are pleading with you to move in us, to not leave us the same today. Let your spirit move freely. Let him fill us. Let him convict us. Let him apply it to us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning's text is one of the most difficult in all of Scripture. It's a text that many people, that has caused people to abandon the Christian faith or to reject the Christian faith on their, its basis. But it's a strange dichotomy, because though it has led many to abandon the faith, but though it has caused many who are outside of the faith to criticize the faith, as, uh, to criticize our God as being bloodthirsty and murderous, it has led many others over the history of the Bible into deep and profound worship. And so this morning I ask you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. We're going to read it in pieces today, but would you stand with me as we read the first two verses together? It's a passage that you are no doubt familiar with. God's Word says in Genesis 22, beginning in verse 1, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. Our text starts right out of the gate with difficult words. It says that God comes to Abraham, calls out to Abraham through the angel of the Lord, and, I, and he says, Abraham, and Abraham says, Here I am, Lord. Certainly expecting to hear, have encouraging news, most likely, or exciting news. This is when the last time that the Lord had come and told him, a hundred-year-old Abraham, a ninety-year-old Sarah, that they were going to bear a covenant son, a son through whom God would save the world. So he comes and he says, this time, I don't have a promise, I have a test. Of course, he doesn't tell Abraham that it's a test. Now that's a terrifying thought, isn't it? That an omniscient, omnipotent, almighty God in control of the world, reigning over the earth, is a testing God. It's terrifying to consider that we ourselves will endure tests if we walk with the Lord, if we are children of the Lord. Abraham was his child. Abraham was the one that, that God had said his faith has been credited to him as righteousness. 
It was through Abraham that God was going to grow a great nation that would be a blessing to the nations. It was through Abraham whose seed would ultimately be Christ to die and redeem the world. And so if he will test Abraham, he will test every single one of us. You see, God will test us through hardship. God will call us to do things that are dangerous and irrational. God will call us to come to the edge of the cliff and he will command us to jump. Only trusting him. Now we need to be careful to understand that God, though he tests, he does not tempt. James tells us this. God is not baiting Abraham into sin and God does not bait us into sin. Instead, God calls us up to the edges of life. God calls us up to the, to the edge of the mountain and he says, will you trust me or not? What is your faith made of? This is no doubt what we see with Abraham. And the tension here is, is that we don't want this. The tension for us when it comes to test is that we don't want to be tested. We ask ourselves questions like, if God is good and God is in control of all things, and being good, he doesn't want his children to go through hard things, why is it that I have to be tested? Why can't God just make my life simple? Why can't God just make my life easy? Why must God test me? I want you to hold on to that question. We're going to come back to it at the very end. Hold on. Why must God test us? Why does God test us? Hold on to that. Now when we come to verse 2, our passage takes a stern and somber jerk to the right. It's a severe turn. It comes to verse 2, and it's one of the most difficult verses in all of Scripture. He says, he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Do you understand what those words mean? A burnt offering was an offering that you would make, and you would, uh, it, it was a voluntary offering, a willing offering. It was not required of you. But you made it on behalf of your family, or on behalf of yourself even, to show that you wanted to be particularly set aside for the Lord. You, you, you offered this burnt offering willingly, saying, Lord, I willingly bring you my life. I willingly bring you my family. I willingly bring you everything that I am, wanting to be set aside for your glory, wanting you to use me however you see fit. And so to perform a burnt offering, what you would do is you would have an altar built of wood. You would bring a lamb or a ram or a bull and you would bring it and you would, you would have a knife and you would have, uh, you would have a flint stone and you would bring this bull and you would walk it over to the altar and you would bind it by its wrists and bind it by its feet. You would lay the, the bull or the lamb on the altar and, and the way that it was done is you would take your hand and you would place it on the, on the head of the animal and you would take the knife and you would slash its throat. And as you cut the jugular, blood would begin to pour, and you would take the blood, and you would begin to sprinkle it all over the altar, showing that it was the blood that was required to purify the sin, blood required by God. Then after that was over, you would cut the animal into pieces, and you would lay the pieces on the altar, and you would build a fire that was hot enough for it to burn, but not so hot that it would burn quickly. As when you offered a burnt offering, it was to last all night long, all the way into the next day. The Jews, in fact, made it their goal to have someone offering a burnt offering every hour of the day. And so you would offer yours, and it would have to last until the next person would come and to take your place. 
This is what God is commanding Abraham to do to his son Isaac. His only son Isaac. His beloved son Isaac. To place his hand on his son's head. To slash his throat. And to burn him throughout the night as an offering up to God. What kind of God does that? What kind of God does that? What kind of God is this? Hold on to that. Hold on to that. We're going to come back to that. What kind of God demands a man do such a thing? Now in our verses, it gives us a lot of detail. It goes to great lengths to speak about who Isaac is. As a matter of fact, only five times in all of the verses that we read today in Genesis 22 is Isaac referred to as Isaac. Ten times, twice as many, he is referred to as Abraham's son. Three more times, he is referred to not just as Abraham's son, but as Abraham's only son. So we have five times referred to as Isaac, 13 times referred to as the son. It's it's placing emphasis on what the goal is here. It's playing emphasis here on, on the message that's coming across. It's playing emphasis on the sobriety and the severity of this moment. What's weird, though, is that this is not Isaac's only son. Isaac has another son. You see, God had promised Isaac, that, or promised Abraham, that he would make him into a great nation. That he would use his descendants to, to turn him in, and he would, as a blessing to all the nations, and they would be more numerous than all the stars in the sky, more numerous than all the sand on the beaches. But for years, he and his wife struggled with infertility. For years, he and his wife could not have a child. He could not have an heir. It seemed as though the covenant of God would not be true. It seemed as though the covenant of God would be broken. That God would not be able to keep his word. And so after years and years and years of being frustrated with infertility, finally Sarah says, I've had enough. Take my servant Hagar. And have a child with her. And so Abraham marries Hagar and they have a son named Ishmael. A bull of a man, the Bible says. And Abraham loves Ishmael. And Ishmael is an impressive man and accomplishes great feats. But God comes to him and he says, you have, this son has been born in unfaith. You have not trusted me. It's not going to be that one that is the son that will be the heir. It is not that through that summit, son that I will... Fulfill my covenant. There is another son coming. There's a son, and I want you to name him Isaac. And through Isaac, who will be born not to Hagar, but to Sarah, I'm going to turn him into a great nation. And you know how they responded? They laughed. The Bible says that Sarah and Abraham laughed. Sarah was 90 years old. Abraham was a hundred years old. After 90 years of infertility, how would God work now? What would God do now? The promise was already broken. They laughed at him. Until all of a sudden, her her belly began to grow. And God had fulfilled his word. You see, Isaac is the, is the only son because Isaac is the covenant son. Isaac is the son that was promised by God. Isaac is the proof that God keeps his covenants. Isaac is the proof that God will fulfill his word. Isaac is the proof that God is reliable and trustworthy and good. 
Isaac is the picture in Abraham's family that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he's going to do. Isaac is the picture personified God's goodness. And now, now Isaac is, is supposed to be offered. He's the miracle child. He's the baby that they always wanted. He was the one that led them to depression as they were waiting for him. He was the one they always wanted. And now we have to sacrifice him. His dad, his father, has to willingly march him to the top of a mountain and cut his throat. At stake here is not just a father's love for his son. At stake here is what kind of God this is. At stake here is whether or not that God will keep his word. At stake here is whether or not God will fulfill his promise. At stake here is whether or not God will keep his covenant. At stake here is whether or not God will save the world. God had promised through the seed of Abraham, through, through Isaac, the, the promised seed, the covenant son that was to come, that he would redeem the nations, that he would save the nations. And now all of that is in flux. So much so that Genesis 22 has everything to do with my salvation and your salvation. If what happens in Genesis 22 is not true, then this is a cruel book and a vicious book. But what, if what happens in Genesis 22 is true, then all of us are saved. You know, I, was, I think he was teaching something through this test of the, to Abraham. You know what your most likely idol is in your life? Your most likely idol is, are those things or those people that you love the most. The most likely idol in your life, the most likely thing to get in between you and your love for God, you and your trust for God, you and your faith for God, are those things in your life that you care the most about. Think about money. People love the Bible. They love hearing the Bible preached. They love coming to church until the Bible talks about money, right? Money makes them uncomfortable. Why? They love their money. They love to hold on to it. They love to spend it. They like to save it. They like to, to watch the numbers grow. They like to watch their garage grow. They like to watch their house grow. And so they, they're good with it as long as we talk about money because money, we love our money. Our jobs. People like the, the prominence that comes with their job, the identity that they find in it. They like, they like the, the status that it gives them and the purpose that it gives them and the, their ability to be able to measure the success of their life. So I'll do whatever you want me to do, Lord, but it can't cost me my job. It can't cost me my job, as long as it doesn't cost me my job. But perhaps what we're seeing in Abraham is that the most likely idol for all of us is our families. A few weeks ago, I said a difficult thing in which I talked about the, how dangerous it was for us to turn our children into idols. And yet I think clearly that's what's in, in check here. Think about for Abraham. Abraham was a wealthy man. Abraham was in need of nothing. You could take his money. He didn't care. He was old. He was 100 years old. He was fixing to be with God anyway. You could take his prominence. He had already given up on all of that. That didn't matter to Abraham. But he had his son. He had the son that he had waited his life for. You can imagine how Abraham must have loved his son, how Abraham must have cared for his son, how Abraham must have, must have wanted to do everything to make his son happy and the joy that his son would bring into his life. Now there's a potential for an idol. 
There's potential for an idol. There's potential for someone, for your, his relationship with his son, to get in between he and his relationship with the Lord. As long as you, you, Lord, you can have everything else in my life. I will go everywhere else you want me to go. But you can't have my beloved son, my only son, the son that you have given to me. Those idols in your life are those that, those people that you love most, and it very likely could be your children, brothers and sisters. Could it be that we have excused idol-making and called it normal Christian parenting? Are you making idols out of your children? Are they the center of your life? Are they the center of your world? Are they that which everything else in your family revolves around and moves around and is built around? That is a place that only God is equipped to handle. It will bring disruption to the soul of your child. Perhaps another way to ask it is, do you find yourself needing to protect your children from God? Are you comfortable looking your little girl or looking your little boy in the eye, looking your teenage son in the eye and saying, son, wherever God calls you to go, you must go, even if that requires you leaving me. Even if that requires you going and doing dangerous things for his glory. Even if that means that your father and I will never see you again. Go, follow the Lord. Or do you feel like you have to tell your children, it's okay to just live a normal American life as long as you don't drink or cuss as much as everybody else? Could it be that we are turning our children into idols? Could it be that we are turning our families into idols? Perhaps this morning, this is what God is calling you to. Perhaps this morning, that's what God is challenging you with. Let's begin back in verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the burnt lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. Perhaps the most remarkable part about Genesis 22 is Abraham's response. I don't know what my response would have been that day, but I can tell you it likely would not have been Abraham's. What does it say Abraham did? It said that he woke up early the next morning and went. If God asked you to slaughter your son, would you wake up early to do it? If God's will for your life was something that was so unbelievable, something that seemed so irrational, something that seemed so illogical, would you wake up early to go and take, take, do it? But, but Abraham obeys, and he obeys expediently. The other thing that's amazing to me is that throughout Abraham's life, we've seen that he is one that will, make, uh, that will put conditions on God, or one that will, uh, de- that one that will debate God. When God says that he's going to destroy Sodom, Abraham goes to God and he says, but, but God, if there are 50 men there, if there are 50 righteous people, spare Sodom. And God says, okay, and then he goes down to 40 and 20 and 10 and 5. If there are just five righteous men in all of Sodom, won't you spare Sodom? 
Later on, as we said earlier, he, he's going to come to them, and he's going to tell them that they're going to have a son, Abraham 100, Sarah 90, and they're going to laugh at him. He was not the picture of fate over the course of his life. But somehow, by the time we get to Genesis 22, he has matured. By the time we've gotten to, to Genesis 22, having endured the things that he's endured and seen God work in the way that he's seen God work, Abraham does not give one condition to God. He just goes. He just goes. It's unthinkable to me. It's unthinkable to me that Abraham would receive such a uh, difficult and severe test, such a difficult and severe commandment, and he said, I'm going to wake up early and go. I'm just going to do it. In your life, what is it that you're unwilling to offer to God without condition? In your life, what is it that you're unwilling to offer to God without condition? When you pray, what is it that causes your heart to race? When you pray, what is it that you don't want to ask him to do? What is it that you don't want to ask him for? Where is it that you are having difficult surrendering? Is it your money? Is it, is it your job? Is it your health? Are you willing to say, God, if it would bring revival in my community, if it would bring revival in my church, strike me dead? Are you willing to trust him that way? What about with your children? If I'm honest with you this morning, I think the most terrifying thing in the life of any Christian parent is to, to pray out to God and tell him that, Lord, whatever it means, wherever it goes, whatever it looks like, I want you to have my child. Because it might just be that God takes you up on it. It might just be that God answers your, your, your prayer with, with a, a positive response, taking him from you for his glory. I wrote this sermon with tears because the most difficult prayer I pray is that prayer. Y'all, Gracie Kate has brought joy into my life that I can't even describe to you. She causes me to feel things that I don't know how to articulate. She causes me to want to do things that I would have never wanted to do in a hundred years. I look at her and she lights up my world. The Lord has given to her to me as a gift of grace. And it's just inconceivable to me that anything would hurt. And I pray, I said, God, as I was writing, I said, God, I don't care what it looks like. I don't care if it, if it means that, that she's going to go to the mission field and I'm not going to see her for years on end. God, even if it means that her mother and I will never see her again as she goes to dangerous places and ministers to dangerous people. God, even if it means that you have to take her life at a young age. God, whatever it means, whatever it looks like, God, I want you to take my little girl. I want you to take my daughters. I want them to be captivated by you. I want them to know you. I want them to love you. I want them to pursue you. God, take my daughters. Take them and use them however you see fit. And it's only terrifying if you believe God will answer you. It's only terrifying if you believe by faith when you pray that God hears you and answers you. But as Christian people, that's what we believe. So badly when I pray, I want to add conditions. I want to say, God, as long as you keep her safe, 
I want to say, God, as long as you keep her healthy, God, as long as you keep her happy, God, as long as you, you give her a long life, as long as you don't take her away from me, but I can't because God does not answer conditional prayers. God only answers the kind of prayers when we come to him in faith, asking for the good things, saying, God, I know that you are trustworthy in all things. We don't bargain with God about our children. We don't bargain with God about who they're to become or what they're to do. We bring them and say, God, I'm laying them on the altar. God, wherever, whenever, however, would you just save them? Would you just let them love you with all of their life? Would you just let them love you with all of their hearts? Church family, would you pray that prayer with me? Would you pray this dangerous prayer with my family? Would you pray this dangerous prayer with Megan and I? It's terrifying, and it's hard, and it's difficult. But can you trust God? That's what's at issue. Can you trust God? You feel the tension in your soul right now. That is the tension that Abraham was feeling this day. That is where Abraham is in Genesis 22. Can I trust God? So he piles up all the lumber on Isaac's back. And Isaac and Abraham begin to walk up the mountain with Isaac carrying his own cross as he goes. And as they walk up the mountain that day, something strikes Isaac as odd. They, Isaac has seen this before. Isaac has been a part of this before. He knows what worship looks like. He knows what it means to offer a burnt offering. This is nothing new to him. And we know this by the way that he responds. He responds with knowledge. He says, hey, Dad. Dad. I see, the, I, see the, I see the flint, I see the knife, we've got the wood, but where's the lamb? Where's the lamb, Dad? Imagine as, as Isaac hears these words, how his heart, or Abraham hears these words, how his heart must have fallen to his feet. He loves his son, and his son is starting to put things together that says something's off here, and that something's weird here, and that things aren't, aren't really coming together like they always are. And Abraham says the only thing that he knows to say, God will provide. Son, God will provide. See, that's what a test looks like. When the Lord tests us, that's what it looks like. <clears throat> He strips away any illusions of being saved by normal means. He strips away any illusions of being comforted by normal means. He strips away any illusion of being able to find refuge in anything other than the goodness of his providence. And as Abraham speaks these words, he is taking refuge in God's providence, saying, I know God is good, I know God is trustworthy, and I just have to trust him that he's going to provide. These are what tests look like. Tests are moments of faith. Moments of faith happen when, they are, when it's most difficult to have faith. If it wasn't difficult, it wouldn't require faith anyway. And so we have this moment in, in Abraham's life. That's the most difficult question he's ever been asked in all of his life. And the only thing that he can say is, I trust God to provide. Do you trust God that way? Do you trust God to provide? Some of you right now are in the midst of tests. Some of you right now don't know how you're going to wake up from day to day. Some of you right now don't know how you're going to make it from one moment to the next. You don't know how you're going to make it from one grief to the next grief. You don't know what all of it looks like. 
Can you just take refuge in the providence of God this morning? Can you take refuge in the providence of God, that God will provide, that God will move, that God will work, that whatever this is for, whatever this looks like, that you can know it's for your good and for his glory. Isaac must have been astounded by the fate of his dad that day. He knew that his dad was a man that walked with God. He had heard the story of his birth, no doubt, how his dad had had told him, hey, your mom and I didn't think it was possible, man. Look at what God has done. You are evidence that we can trust God. No doubt every time they went up to to offer a lamb before God and to to sprinkle the blood, he said, this should be our blood. But our God is good and our God is trustworthy. So Isaac, we set ourselves apart because God is good. But this was different. This was different. Abraham was going to the top of the mountain without any lamb, without a ram, without a bull, without even a pigeon to sacrifice. Isaac must have been astounded saying, wow, how does my, God, how does my dad know that God will provide? He hasn't seen it. How does he know? He said, unbeknownst to Abraham and unbeknownst to Isaac, God had been preparing Abraham his entire life for this test. And through Abraham, God had been preparing Isaac all of his life for this test, for this moment. That everything in his life was divinely meeting this crescendo at the end so that we would see and learn and experience faith and worship in a way that was extraordinary and unknown in any other capacity. But you know what I wonder sometimes? How many of us would have taken our son up the mountain that day? How many of us would have taken our son up the mountain that day? The moment that was most formative in the faith of Isaac. The moment that would be formative in the future of Israel. That they would anchor themselves into by faith. That God was trustworthy and God was good. How many of us would have ever taken Isaac to the top of the mountain to begin with? How many of us would have trusted God that way? How many of us would have had faith that way? You see, it's one thing to offer your children to God. It's another thing to prepare them to be offered to God. Abraham had prepared Isaac for that moment. Abraham had shown Isaac what it meant for his dad to worship. Abraham had shown Isaac what it meant for his dad to trust in God. Abraham had shown Isaac what it meant to follow after God and to take refuge in the providence of God. Abraham had walked through the valley of the shadow of death and he had brought Isaac along with him to show him that the shepherd was faithful. Brothers and sisters, don't shelter your kids from the crisis of faith don't shepherd your children from the valley of the shadow of death let them walk with you through the valley that they might see the faithfulness of the shepherd and walk with you and see your faith firsthand that it might be built upon for future generations to come not only do we offer our children but we prepare them to be offered not only do we train them to live dangerously we prepare them to live dangerously not only do we, we uh, do we tell them they are all for the lord we lead them and show them what that actually looks like with our lives abraham had prepared isaac by doing nothing more than living a faithful life in front of him let's keep going beginning in verse 9 we'll read to the end of the chapter verse 19 when they came to the place of which god had told him Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. 
And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the, that place, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and I have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. In your offspring you shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men. And they arose and went to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Abraham raises the knife high. Isaac laid on the altar. And the beautiful picture here is that Isaac would have been stronger than his dad. His dad, over a hundred. Isaac, a strong, virile young man, could have surely fought off his dad, could have surely ran away from his dad, with his dad unable to go. But, his, but Isaac allows himself to be bound just as a sacrifice would be bound, to be laid on an altar just as, an, as a sacrifice would be laid on an altar, willingly laying himself there. Abraham raises the knife hard, up high, no doubt, tears streaming down his face, his heart sinking to his feet, his stomach rumbling in disruption. And as just as he's about to plunge the knife into the heart of his son, the angel of the Lord speaks and says, Abraham, Abraham. He looks over and he says, don't do it. Don't do it. The Lord has provided a ram. The Lord has brought a substitute. The Lord has offered a substitute. Isaac has been delivered. See, what kind of God is this? What kind of God is it that would ask a man to do such a hard thing? What kind of God is it that would put a man through such a test as this? It is a substitute providing God that would ask you to do such a thing. It is a God that would provide a substitute that would deliver your son. You see, there's another son to come. A one and only son. A beloved son. A long-awaited son. A son that would bear his own cross and carry his own cross on top of the mountain called Golgotha. And there he would live and he would die. And he would bear his life, laying himself willingly on the cross on our behalf so that the wrath of God would be poured over him and that son the Lord would not spare instead he would spare your son and my son and me and you what kind of God would ask us to do such a hard thing a God that offers a substitute a God that gives us his son that we might be delivered and set free and liberated forever so that no consequences in this life can hold us down you see that day Abraham worshipped like he had never worshipped before. Would he have prayed to experience such a test? Of course not. Nobody ever wants to have the knife in, your, in the air to put it through the heart of your son. But if, would he go back and not do it again? Absolutely not. Because Abraham learned about the Lord that day in ways that he had never learned. He worshipped God in ways that day that he had never worshipped God. Why is it that God tests us? Why is it if God is good and God is in control that he allows hardship to come into our lives? 
Why is it if God is good and God is trustworthy and God is in control that he allows us to come and forces us to come up to the edges of the cliffs of life and demands that we jump over the edge? It's because assurance and depth comes through trial. Assurance of the firmness of the grip of God around you can only come when you have needed it. Assurance can only come when you have needed God to deliver you and you have needed God to do a great work through you. Depth in worship can't come from the surface level. Depth in worship doesn't come through the mountaintops. Depth in worship doesn't come through the easy seasons of life. Depth of worship comes when you look back and you thought, man, that was the, as hard as it gets. That was as bad as it's ever been. That was as difficult as it ever was for me to take a breath on earth. And yet I look back and all I can say is, look at how God has been faithful. Look at how God has moved. Look at how God has worked. And it fills you with worship. This morning, you can trust God. You can trust God as a substitute providing God and an answer providing God. You can trust God as the one who offered up his one and only beloved son. You can trust God as the one who says, I'm going to bring you through some tests. I'm going to bring you through some hardship. But on the other side, I'm going to let you have an assurance of the firmness of my grip and a depth in your worship that you never knew before. This morning I ask you, have you ever offered yourself to the Lord? Have you ever offered yourself to the Lord fully? Have you ever come to the place where you come without condition and say, God, as long as you want, God, as long as you don't, as long as this doesn't happen or as long as this doesn't happen, I will follow you. Have have you ever come to him without saying any of that stuff? Have you ever come and said, God, my life to you is a blank check. Write it for whatever you want it to be and I will go. Whatever the cost, I want to do it. Wherever you want to send me, I want to be there. That's what salvation looks like. That's what deliverance looks like. This morning, have you ever surrendered to him? But to our families, here's what I want to ask you to do. This morning, I want you to offer up your children to the Lord. I want you to offer up your children to the Lord. To show them that they are not idols. To show them that they are not the center of the universe. To show them that the most important thing in your life is to make sure that their life is devoted to the Lord. I want you to, if their children are here, take them and bring them to the altar together. Pray over them. Pray that God would use them without any condition. That wherever he wants to send them, whatever dangerous place that is, whatever whatever his will looks like, whatever whatever shape that takes, however it is that they can bring him glory with their life, that they they are his. If you're a teenager, you can come and you can pray that the Lord would give you the courage to pray this way for your children one day. That even now, before you've met your children, you can say, God, I don't even know what they look like. I don't even know what their names will be, but I know that I want them to be yours. I know that I want to offer them to you. Grandparents, come and weep over your grandchildren and pray that the Lord would save them. Pray that the Lord would use them. Come this morning without condition. Offer yourself and offer your families up to the Lord. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, We only pray to you because we believe that you hear us and we believe that you will answer us. And frankly, God, that 